We're still on the chapter, the section practicing Dharma, and this is the tail end of the talk that Lumpur gave on the uh, the uh, water festival, the Songkran day. Thus, let all of us who are Buddhists disengage ourselves from meaningless activities and make serious efforts to practice goodness. If we don't yet have virtue, we should strive to develop it. If we have a little virtue, we should strive to increase it. If we have great virtue, we should continue on until we can be released from the cycle of samsara. And by the blessings of the three jewels, may all of you be protected and supported in your practice of this morality and dharma. May you have happiness and long life. May your practice lead to the end of suffering and bring you to the place of peace and happiness. Please don't be heedless. Today I have spoken for an appropriate length of time. I only wish to remind you now to practice Dhamma. Whatever precepts and actions we have established here at Wapapong, you should determine in your minds to practice them and make yourselves good examples for your families and loved ones. This would really be something auspicious. Now I will make the wish that all your pure aspirations be fulfilled. So that's the end of that, um, that Dhamma talk. And so uh, a couple of points to, to pick up there. I would say, um, by the blessings of the three jewels, may all of you be protected and supported in your practice of this morali- morality and dharma. So the three jewels are also the three refuges, uh, sarana, uh, and uh, you know, the three, um, the tiratana, the three jewels, the three refuges. And so it's good to consider, well, what makes... Uh, uh, a refuge. What is? Uh, what does that mean uh, in terms of uh, the um, these principles? And one of the things that I like to point out uh, often on a Sunday morning when people uh, request the opportunity to determine the uh, refuges and precepts is that um, the uh, the uh, these are not just a, an idea in the mind or words or, or uh, you know, thoughts that we we recollect. But what the, uh, why the three jewels, Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, are considered to be refuges. A refuge is a safe place, like a, a building like this is a, a shelter from you know, coldness and darkness and rain and so on. Uh, a refuge is a safe place, it's a, a, a secure abiding. Uh, a jewel is something that's intrinsically valuable or beautiful, it, it's something that is durable, it, it lasts and as of, uh, as of natural worth and uh, is uh, something of value, so that the quality of a jewel uh, is uh, representing those, that sense of uh, preciousness or, or beauty and, um, and durability. But I feel it's also uh, good to, to understand or to reflect, well, what makes Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha a, a safe place? What are, what's that referring to? And so essentially they are inner qualities that, um, and as Lumpur Chah would often say, particularly about the Buddha refuge, you know, they say you know, that the statue, the, the Buddha image is not a refuge, it's a statue, you know, it's a piece of, of uh, Rupa Kanda, it's, a, it's material form, it's the earth element. Um, uh, the, the idea, just uh, the memory of, of uh, the, the Buddha's uh, life or his stories about him is just a memory. Uh, the uh, the name uh, Gautama Buddha or the the idea is just just an idea, and so what makes the um, the Buddha refuge a real refuge 
is that you know what is the uh, the safe place is this very quality of awareness that sense of of uh, the um, the knowing quality of the mind so that if the the practice is developed and particularly insight meditation then the mind is trained to embody that quality of awareness and is not attached to or identified with the objects of awareness like the, the body or feelings that's what we see here smell taste and touch so that's what makes the the buddha refuge that quality uh, of awareness the that knowing element that's what makes it a, a refuge is because whether we feel uh, uh, comfort or discomfort whether we are praised or criticized whether the body is healthy or not those are all perceptions arising and passing away within the field of awareness so if the mind is embodying that quality of awareness and it knows the arising and passing of those different perceptions whether they're comfortable or uncomfortable or indifferent um, that is uh, that's not a, 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 an issue or that's not something that is limiting or um, uh, is uh, anything that can genuinely be owned or is anything genuinely personal so that uh, this is a, a, a feature of the teaching that Lumpur Chah would emphasize a lot he would say you know, the real refuge you might think that the, the Buddha passed away long ago but actually the Buddha is still here you know the Buddha is that puru that awakened awareness of your own heart that's the safe place that's the refuge and if you really want to take refuge in the Buddha um, then it's not just a matter of bowing to a statue or, or reciting verses but it's that shift of attitude that quality of uh, embodying that awake aware uh, attribute of the heart and then the other refuges Dhamma it doesn't just mean the Buddha's teaching but it, it means the fundamental nature of reality uh, the uh, the ultimate reality of, of things of of, of uh, all beings of any you of know, this mind and of the universe so that to take refuge in Dhamma is uh, essentially to attune the the heart and the attitude with with reality with nature to let go of the self-centered habits of, of thinking and and the attitude and to see and to know things in terms of nature and a natural order and then as Lumpur Sumedha would very succinctly and helpfully put it when the Buddha sees the Dhamma what arises is the Sangha when the awake mind sees the way things are what arises is virtuous activity so uh, speaking of the of Sangha refuge in Sangha as an inner quality the way I I most like to um, describe that is that uh, listening to that uh, in the heart that rejoices in what is wholesome, what is good, what is noble, what is uh, unselfish, and that to uh, take refuge in sangha is to choose the the, the good, choose that which is uh, uh, wholesome and and beneficial, and so these are a safe abiding. These are the 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 uh, the three refuges because they are what provides protection so it's not just uh, uh, saying may all of you be project protected by the three jewels it's not like some kind of magical trick you know that if you <laughs> that uh, you have a, a special kind of insurance policy but it's really to do with with mind training and the the attitude the uh, the way the mind's attitude can be uh, say crafted and, and and adjusted to let go of the self-centered reactive habits and to uh, say for the heart to be in tune with its fundamental nature as as dhamma, and that's what provides real protection. And uh, so the um, uh, that uh, I feel is is good to bear in mind. It's one of those things that's that's frequently said and and, and uh, 
we um, can hear it and think, oh yeah, that makes sense, absolutely. And then you know, two minutes later, <laughs> it's gone and we're taking refuge in, in physical comfort or in, um, uh, say, the, the, the particular, having things that we like around and getting, getting away from the things that we dislike. So it's a, an ongoing moment-by-moment moment training that it's pointing to. So that's the end of that particular section. So any thoughts, questions, reflections? Yes, Jenny. Um, I, I guess that the protection that you're talking about um, actually is something that we develop. It's not something that um, is uh, uh, necessarily very strong to start with. Absolutely, yeah. 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 When we start from... Uh, reactivity and self-view and, and our instinctual habits is conditioned by birth. You know, that's, that's where we start from. You know. And uh, so it's, that's why it's called a, a path, you know, the, the Eightfold Path. It's, like it's, a, it's a training, it's a, it's a uh, progressive um, process. And there, even though you know, some, some Buddhist teachings talk in a very sort of high-minded way, you know, we're, all, we're all perfect already, we're all we just have to, just just have to realize that. <laughs> but the, the just that just contains universes, you know. But and so I feel it's one of those things in the that you know, Theravada Buddhism, the, the the teachings of the Pali Canon and the Southern Buddhist world can be looked down upon as being very sort of worldly or mechanistic, or you do this to get that, or and that the sort of high-minded teachings you get in the in Vajrayana or Zen tradition, I say, you know, no path, no goal, no no practitioner, no nothing. But you know, uh, still, <laughs> there's the uh, that that might be true on one level, and it's an uh, and those are inspiring principles. But there can still be those feelings of of, uh, of jealousy with you know the treatment of the the monk next to you or the the speed in your steps on your way to breakfast in the morning. It's like <laughs> the uh, like yes, the mind can be uh, can aspire to those sort of transcendent goals, but it's like, you know, I better get to the kitchen first, otherwise the good stuff will be gone. You know, that's actually what's driving the mind. And but you know, the uh, so I feel that what we have in the Southern Buddhist expression of things is is very much uh, helping people to start where they are, and to you know to to recognize that. Uh, a kind of acknowledgement of the conditioning that's there and then working from that rather than sort of trying to begin from a high-minded position uh, which can just it can be true but they're not very useful not very practical it's rather I, one, one a comparison that comes to mind which might be appropriate or not appropriate but it's rather like in AA you know I'm an alcoholic you know that you start off by acknowledging that's that's where we're beginning, and that's one of the skillful things about AA and the twelve-step programs is like you're not sugaring things over. You're not you're acknowledging. Okay, this is what it's come to. This is where we're beginning from. Okay, right. starting from there, we can do some. We can make some progress. We can uh, things can uh, really be uh, say uh, transformed. But if there isn't that recognition of, yeah, I'm, uh, uh, the mind is identified with my body, my personality, my sense of well-being, my possessions, my role in the community, yeah, that's where we're beginning. You know, like I am a human being. <laughs> so, like with the uh, the, the say the five subjects of re frequent recollection, 
sometimes uh, people question that and say, well, I'm of the nature to age, I'm of the nature to sicken, I'm of the nature to die, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I'm the owner of my karma, heir to my karma. People hear that, or we decide that and say, well, how does that connect to these teachings of anatta? You know, in the same puja, saying the body is not self, feelings are not self, perception is not self. But those five subjects for frequent re- recollection are like saying, you know, I'm an alcoholic. That it's like, I am. You know, it's starting from that sense of, I'm a human being. This is my body. This is, uh, uh, and it, the mind is affected by states of, of health and sickness. There is an aging process, and it seems like I am this body. I am getting older. So it's kind of attuning the attention to the conditioning that's there in order to transcend it. It's not like I am of the nature of age, and I always will be, and that's the absolute reality. It's no. This is the impression that we start from, and then acknowledging that, then the the the, the work can be done for that to be fully let go of or fully understood. If that's pushed aside and say, you know, it's not what I not it's not me, not not mine, it's not who and what I am. The mind can hang on to the idea, but underneath there's still the, <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, uh, I am this, and and uh, the uh, attachments and identifications can be unacknowledged. That makes sense. So it's it's one of those uh, a debate that's been going on for centuries, <laughs> but I feel it's extraordinarily skillful to help to, in a sense, start from where you are, being realistic about that, and then through that realism, then that the intuition of Yes, the body's getting older, but is that the whole story? Oh, look at that. Rather than, I'm not the body, not me, not mine, and taking hold of the idea and, and then not, uh, not fully appreciating how it's not just a, an idea or a philosophy, but it's a, it's a, a, a profound quality of attitude that is, needs to be worked with. Okay, so we go on to the next. We change continents from Wat Bapong. We go to um, IMS in 1979. So we, we hop across uh, from uh, northeast Thailand to Massachusetts. And this is a Dhamma talk that Lumpur Cha gave in 1979 when he was leading a 10-day retreat in IMS. I would like to ask you about your practice. You've all been practicing meditation for a while. Are you sure about the practice yet? These days there are all sorts of meditation teachers around and I'm afraid it might cause you to have some uncertainty about what you should be doing. Actually, there's nothing greater than the Buddha's teachings on concentration and insight meditation that you're practicing. If you have a clear understanding of them, it'll bring about unwavering peace in your hearts. Making the mind peaceful is known as samadhi, concentration meditation. The mind is extremely changeable and unreliable. Have you noticed this? Some days you sit down to meditate and, in no time at all, the mind is calm. Other days you sit and no matter what you do, there's no calm. The mind constantly struggles to get away. Some days it goes well, some days it's awful. The mind displays these different conditions for you to see. You should understand that the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path come together in sila, virtue or moral conduct, samadhi, 
and wisdom. There's nowhere else to look for them. This means that in order to have a successful practice, there must be morality, there must be mental collectedness, and there must be wisdom present in the mind. So, in practicing meditation, you're creating the causes for the path to arise in a very direct way. You're usually taught to close your eyes in sitting meditation so you aren't busy looking at external things. With eyes closed, your attention is naturally turned inward toward the mind, the source of many different kinds of knowledge. Sitting with the eyes not focused on any external objects, establish awareness on the breath. Make awareness of the breath more important than anything else. By keeping with it, you'll come to know the place that is the focal point of awareness. When the factors of the path are at work together, you'll be able to see your breath, feelings, mind and mental objects as they are in the present moment. Ultimately, you'll know that place that is both the focal point of samadhi and the unification of the path factors. This is a uh, very um, uh, classical guidance in terms of of, uh, meditation practice. And uh, he was also... Uh, very uh, aware that the people gathered on this retreat were mostly quite experienced meditators. He was very impressed with how quiet everybody was and made the comment when he was there that he couldn't get the monks of Wapapong to sit so quietly and to, to, uh, to shut up as, uh, as rigorously as the American meditators did. But uh, he also had things to say uh, at the end of the retreat how um, as soon as the retreat was over there was just this kind of gab fest and everyone off to the pizza, pizza parlor and to the movie theater. <laughs> They're very disciplined on the retreat, but then afterwards everyone would go out and, uh, and uh, uh, enjoy themselves at the pizza parlor and the movie theater. But um, anyway, so he was, he was impressed by the, the discipline and the sincerity and the integrity of the, of the group, and so he had a, lo- a lot of respect for their, their commitment and the effort that people were making. I think it's also this particular point um, uh, is a regular theme of his how you know, we, we set the intention to, to work with the mind but the mind is, is definitely not under personal control and rather like the weather you, know, you, can't, uh, you might be able to predict the weather a little bit but you certainly can't control it and if it's a windy day then <laughs> the, uh, the windows will be rattling the trees will be swirling their, their branches and uh, you know you have to have your hat on tight because uh, it's windy. So you know that's that's the the way it is, and that sense of of um, peace and not coming from the, whether the mind is is calm and focused so much as peace being a quality of attitude. So that uh, sometimes things are very calm and still and steady. Sometimes things are, are quite uh, agitated. But even if the objects of mind are agitated, the attitude towards those objects can be very peaceful, just like you can be out being blasted by the wind and still feel a quality of of stillness or peacefulness within yourself, even though the wind is still blasting away, that uh, there's not a a, a quality of uh, being swept up or carried away by that. And so that... um, uh, even though certainly he, he and he teaches here and in many many places about how to concentrate and the values of con- the value of concentration and focus, but also that a- aspect of the 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 peace which is most liberating is not dependent on on the quality of the mind objects, but it's fundamentally the in the attitude that it is there that 
peace comes from right understanding or right view, right right attitude, and that uh, so that the conditions of the body or the mind can be quite uh, uh, sort of intense or agitated or stressful. But if the attitude is skillful, then none of that is disturbing. He doesn't talk about it here, but um, uh, he had many bouts of, of malaria and other illnesses at different times, and so that that yeah very very practical experience and and also the guidance he gave to to others of how you can be you know your whole body sort of sh- sh- shaking with a malarial fever, but your mind can be quite uh, peaceful in relationship to that you know pouring with sweat and the body shaking and so forth, and that uh, the the mind doesn't have to be uh, it can be aware of that and and uh, and uh, fully uh, uh, say uh, attentive to the feelings that go with that, but not disturbed or upset or, or challenged by that. The mind can be at peace with very agitated conditions. So uh, when he talks about the uh, the eight factors of the uh, of the uh, the path come together in sila, samadhi, and panya. So sila, samadhi, and panya, or, or virtue, concentration, and wisdom, that's a, a kind of uh, short version of the Eightfold Path. So that, uh, and it, in the, the way that the Eightfold Path is usually described, it actually starts off wisdom, then virtue, then concentration. So the first two, uh, right view and right resolution or right intention, samaditi, sankapo, they represent the wisdom factors. Then right speech, right action, right livelihood represent the morality, the virtue factors. And then the last three, uh, effort, concentration and mindfulness represent the uh, the samadhi uh, uh, aspect or the meditation aspect. So that it's a kind of uh, convenient way of talking about the Eightfold Path, Sila, Samadhi and Panya, or virtue, concentration and wisdom. So that it's just like a, a way of grouping the particular factors together. Uh, when the the last part of what he was saying there, um, when the factors of the path are, wor- are worked together, you'll be able to see your breath, feelings, mind, and mental objects as they are present, as they are in the present moment. And what uh, what he's referring to there uh, is the sort of classical teachings on the four foundations of mindfulness, and then also in the the main teaching on mindfulness of breathing, the the, uh, the uh, Anapanasati Sutta in the middle length discourses. Uh, that discourse on mindfulness of breathing is very much um, linked to the four foundations of mindfulness. So that the the Anapanasati Sutta is talks about you know the breath in terms of the physical breathing, the in and out uh, quality of the 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 the, the breath uh, the, in the physical form, and then the feelings, the sensations of the breath entering and leaving, the sensations of of the breath arising and passing away, and then. The, um, the the qualities of mood, jitanupasana, um, uh, with with respect to, to the breath, and then finally the the dhammanupasana, the, um, the the fourth of the four foundations of mindfulness, um, it's often translated as mental objects or dhamma with a small d, but in the um, uh, it's very clear in the in the Anapanasati Sutta, if you look at that, that that fourth foundation. Is uh, it's really dhamma with a big D rather than a small D. Like, so dhamma with a small D is like a mental object, um, but uh, it's not that different from the um, chitanupasana if it was just a mental object. But rather, it, what you have in the mindfulness of breathing sutta, it's seeing the breath in terms of insight, seeing it with wisdom. So it's looking at the the changing nature. So it's talking about 
observing the breath and, f and watching that arising and passing away. So it's consciously cultivating the perception of impermanence and the cultivation of wisdom through that. Is that really the essence of that fourth foundation of mindfulness? So it's uh, the uh, breath in terms of the body, breath in terms of feeling, breath in terms of mind states, and then breath in terms of of uh, dhamma and seeing things in terms of their their fundamental nature. That uh, is uh, is I would say that's the 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 framework that is presented there in the Anapanasati Sutta. And as he's, you know, that um, when the mind is really fully attuned to the breath, then all of those four aspects are functioning together. There's the physical breathing, the feelings of it, the the moods associated with it, and then the the perception of anicca change, the arising and passing quality that's also uh, part of it. So those all those four aspects can be appreciated um, in that quality of of focus. Any thoughts, questions? Yes. Yeah, early in that uh, the introduction of that talk, um, he points out that um, when we're uncertain about the practice, when we're confused, what should I be doing, how do I do it, mm -hmm. then that itself is a source of suffering and does not lead to peace of mind. I think those of us in the West who have great exposure to many teachers and many teachings I think it's very easy for us to maybe uh, load up on too many different techniques and ideas and uh, it seems to me like it would be really nice if I could offload about 90% <laughs> of what I know <laughs> and just you know stick with what I learned in my first few years but you know that's the way the mind is so that's just another thing to be aware of. Indeed, yeah. I thought it was interesting that he pointed that out early on. Yeah, I think also he, he was... Um just by having been in the States for a little while and then uh, talking with the uh, people there. He was traveling with um, Ajahn Pabakaro, Joseph Kappel at that time. He was translating. Uh, Jack Cornfield was um, there at IMS in those days, and he spoke pretty good Thai, so he could also talk with, with Lumpur. So he had a pretty good sense of the different influences that were there for the, for the group and could see that people had all kinds of different practices. And if you look at the, the group photograph, of um, uh, the the retreatants that there's there's uh, uh, sort of a, who was gathered there. There's a, a few people that were out of the Tibetan tradition as well and Zen practitioners, so that he was somewhat appraised of the different backgrounds people had, and so um, that um, that sense of, of well, what's the right thing to be doing? What's the best thing to be doing? And there's this practice, and this one seems to say the opposite of that one. And he himself had been a a a, a um, uh, a very accomplished doubter in his early life uh, as a monk and always dealing with that sense of what's the right thing to do or what, what, how should I be understanding things because his introduction was very much through the suttas and the commentaries and he didn't have a meditation teacher for the, uh, the first so he went into the monastery when he was nine and then was um, didn't really uh, have anyone to give him any guidance on meditation until he sort of left on, uh, after his father died and went wandering on Tudong about um, 17 or 18 years later when he was about 27, 28 he, was, he had been a monk for about 7 years before he left the village monastery so his first most you know, nearly 20 years in the monastery he was just 
the suttas and commentaries and the vinaya rules and and no no meditation guidance and so then having to map what he'd learned from the Visuddhimagga or the you know the the sutta teachings and the interpretation he got from his his village ajans then meeting people like uh uh ajan kinnery or ajan um uh tongrat the a local you know, monks who are meditation teachers it was like oh what huh? this is really this isn't anything I've read about. Huh? What? So there was a lot of having to process his conditioning of having grown up in the monastery and then what he was getting from the forest ajans and then trying to figure out how to, to do it. And, and uh, with, with Vinaya as well as with, with meditation practice as well. And that uh, he was... Um, so he, he had dealt with a lot of, of doubt. But then also by this time he was very much... Uh, you know, fully aware of what really worked and what was valuable for him and the people that he'd been teaching for m- many years, and so that sense of appreciating that the dance that can arise, but um, that sense of well, uh, yeah, those 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 dance can be there and that can be confusing, but what we're the the guidance is given here. He would say, you know, I can uh, uh, reassure you or assure you that this is. Uh, this is the the core material that we need to to learn and, and the core skills that uh, are useful to develop. Other thoughts, questions? Yes. At that time, uh, were you in in Thailand? Uh, I was. I um, I had just become a bhikkhu. Uh, my my upasampada was. Early April, and then he went off to this to uh, Britain and the States just after that. So I was a bhikkhu of about a, a month when he, when he was teaching there. I've been a monk for about a month or two. At that point, I was twenty twenty two years old. You didn't have a chance to go with him to the U.S. No, no, <laughs> no. I was a totally junior monk. Well, yeah, well, there's absolutely no reason why I would, he would take me. There's a lot of other people further up the line. Ajahn Pabakaro. Oh, okay. And then Paul Breiter, who was, had left the monastery um, in 76. So he, was, he, he hooked up with them. And also he had very, very good Thai language skills. And, and Lao, he could speak Lao very well as well. Both uh, Ajahn Pabakaro and Paul Breiter spoke the local dialect very fluently so they could really chat very easily so um, and then Paul had been living in the States and also doing a lot of Zen practice um, so he was um, cluing Lumpur Cha into a lot of the sort of American Dharma scene and giving him a, a, a sort of briefings on the American Dharma world if you if you look at Paul's book called Venerable Father yeah. I read it. I love the book. Yeah. So there's quite a bit in there of him, him appraising Lumpur about how weird and, and uh, wonderful life. American life was. Paul's life himself. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yes. That's what I really like. It has a great opening line. It's uh, the the opening paragraph of Venerable Father is something like, um, "I was uh, I was in in the middle of a, a, a miserable day in a, in a miserable life." <laughs> I went into to the, the 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 common room in the vihara 
to join with my other miserable monastic companions. <laughs> and they, one of my, my, miserable, my miserable brother monks asked me, what would you like? And I said, hemlock. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't have any hemlock, so I settled for cocoa. <laughs> it's like one of the, the great opening paragraphs of the Dharma literature. You get the full feeling of Paul's sardonic humour. Very kind of uh, Jewish New Yorker. Yeah. Yes, and you try to uh, what, uh, quit Mark Mahmoud and Lumpo trying to, you know. Yeah, Lumpo Charles not, see, not seeing him with his tray of offerings yeah. for weeks and weeks. And that, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, there's many very touching moments. Uh, he's, he's determined to corner Lumpur and get Lumpur to agree to let him leave. And then, uh, and. <laughs> That there's this moment he describes where he comes stomping out of the sara while Nana Shah is saying, I need a lawyer. <laughs> Once again, he's like, okay, now I've got him, I've got it. he can't escape. And it's like, damn, how did that, what? Somehow he wriggled out of it again. <laughs> but, uh, what is he doing now? Um, he lives in Florida. Any, tr- Any good New York Jew would do. <laughs> yeah. He's gone to Florida, and he, uh, he's married to a, uh, a woman, a Chinese uh, woman from Taiwan. And um, I think he does quite a lot of, of translation and as much Dharma practice as he, as he can. Is he the one who wanted to, he missed a girlfriend, and Rongpo uh, said, asked about no. the poop? No. That was uh, Gary McFarland. Oh. Adi, uh, Adi Tamo. Was, uh, no, he was a a, 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 a psychologist before uh, before he entered the monastery. Gary uh, Adi Tamo, but um, no, Paul did, didn't have a girlfriend at that point. I think Lumpur Chak comes across as a John master most clearly in uh, Venerable Father. <laughs> Because the humor and the slyness, it, it really comes through. Yeah. It makes me laugh. It makes me think of my you know, Chani background a little bit. Yes. Yeah. yeah, very much. It's a, it's a one of those great, really takes you into, into the, the sort of teacher-student dynamic in a very, very direct way. That's right, prisoners of Buddha. That's right. I joined with my other prisoners of Buddha in the, in the common room. So, when developing samadhi, fix your attention on the breath and imagine that you are sitting alone with no other people and nothing else around to bother you. Develop this perception, sustaining it until the mind completely lets go of the world outside and all that is left is simply the awareness of the breath entering and leaving. The mind must set aside the external world. Don't allow yourself to start thinking about the people sitting around you. Don't give opportunity to any thoughts that will stir the mind. It's better to throw them out and be done with them. There's no one else there, you're sitting all alone. Develop this perception until all memories and thoughts concerning people and things subside and you're no longer taking an interest in such externals. Then you can fix your attention solely on the in and out breaths. Breathe normally. Allow the inhalations and exhalations to continue naturally without forcing them to be longer or shorter, stronger or weaker than normal. Allow the breath to continue normally and smoothly and observe it entering and leaving the body. Once the mind has let go of external objects, you'll no longer feel disturbed by the sound of traffic or other noises. 
you won't feel irritated with anything outside. Whether it's forms, sounds or whatever, they won't be a source of disturbance because the mind won't be paying attention to them as it becomes centred upon the breath. If the mind is agitated by different things and you can't concentrate, try taking an extra deep breath until the lungs are completely full and then release all the air until there's none left inside. Do this several times, then re-establish awareness and, co and continue to develop concentration. Having re-established mindfulness, it's normal that for a period the mind will be calm. Then it'll become distracted again. When this happens, bring it back, take another deep breath and expel all the air from your lungs. Fill the lungs to capacity again for a moment, then re-establish mindfulness on the breath. Fix your mindfulness on the inhalations and exhalations once more. So, uh, um, uh, again, there's a, a few um, uh, key elements in the, uh, this sort of uh, fundamental guidance. Um, when it says you know, the mind must set aside the external world, that's not in terms of a life principle, <laughs> but uh, in terms of the, the, uh, the skill of this particular task of, of training the mind in concentration, so that it's not a matter of uh, ignoring your livelihood or your family or your other responsibilities, but um, at the beginning of um, a sitting like this, and it's the kind of guidance that I, I've, uh, I always uh, give is to say, Okay, for this period of time, there's nothing you have to figure out, nothing you have to remember, nothing you have to plan, all of that can wait. And, and, a, and a skillful way of developing that is just to, to use the word later, <laughs> rather than, than trying to sort of push everything away, just say, yes, that's an important consideration, yes, that is something that requires attention, but not now. It can wait for half an hour or an hour, and that, yes, that's very significant, that does require some, uh, some uh, say, responsible... Uh, thought about it but not now that can happen later so it's a conscious focusing on uh, on the task in hand and it's rather like um, you know that you get into a car or you get onto a train in order to make a journey it's not that you want to be in a little metal box as a sort of what you want to do for the rest of your life but you get into a car or you get onto a train or a plane to in order to get somewhere so you deliberately and quite consciously uh, take on that limitation in order to uh, to fulfil a particular intention or a particular purpose. So, uh, yes, it's a limitation. Yes, it's a, a, a putting aside of other things. If you're sitting in a car, you can't go for a, you know, a wander. <laughs> you're strapped into your seat. Um, but that's the nature of making a journey in a car, so that uh, you are consciously putting aside that capacity to get up and walk around in order to... Uh, make a, a journey by by road, so that um, it's uh, it's just just a skillful way of setting things up at the beginning of a, a period of meditation. Say that uh, for now, all that can wait till later. The only thing I'm interested in is the in and out breath, and to uh, set that as a, a deliberate and conscious intention. The uh, again is speaking about doubt and different methodologies and uh, all the different recipes in. In the recipe book, <laughs> like uh, oh, there's so many things to, to, that can, you can cook. It's like, well, just just choose one thing and just do that. You know, that uh, is a, uh, the uh, the ways of working with the breath. Uh, many and various um, kinds of mindfulness of breathing and different different focuses. And, and Lumpur Cha's standard advice 
uh, and it also follows what you have in the suttas, I would say, is that you're not trying to control or force the breath in any particular way, just noticing sometimes it's long, sometimes it's short, sometimes it's deep, sometimes it's shallow. Just let the, the body breathe according to its own natural disposition, that you're not crafting the breath or steering it or, or trying to control it. And that is very different from some other methods, that deliberately using the breath for particular purposes, but this is the you know, standard uh, advice, just to let the body breathe according to its own intelligence, its own sort of natural system, and then let the, the flow of breath, whether it's deep or shallow, long or short, to just be as it is, and let the, the changes of rhythm and depth and, and so forth, just let, let that be known as the mind is, is watching it. So it's not as though other methods are not helpful or might not be useful in their own way, but this is like, okay, this is one recipe. This is, <laughs> this is what we're doing today. This is the, the, uh, today's recipe is, is this one. And so rather than, yeah, but what about maybe if, just, again, it's most helpful to say, well, maybe that's a useful method or that has its own value, but right now, leave that aside. And this is what we're going to do um, today. And, it's, and in that respect, and where, uh, one way of... The, of um, working with doubt, and it's a, uh, I wouldn't say it's just a Western habit of conditioning, but there is a tendency to want to be doing the best thing or the right thing, and that uh, to, instead of following that, what's the best thing, what's the right thing, what should I be doing, to instead have your framework as what's good enough. Is it a, a good enough way to be working? Is it a good enough principle? Um, uh, Podi is is the the Thai expression for that. You know, good enough, and um, that saves a lot of grief <laughs> and a lot of doubt. It might not be perfect or might not be ideal, but it's certainly good enough. And that uh, that uh, is a very simple but very powerful principle to to guide uh, our practice with. Then uh, the last thing to he picks up on is if there's a lot of agitation, then uh, you know, you can make effort to control the breath or work with the breath to just, re, you know, uh, re, uh, uh, to focus the mind using the, the physicality of uh, the breath being held uh, to to sort of uh, help stop the, the story making, the, 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 the kind of mental proliferations to bring that to a, a close or to, to say... Um, get a perspective on that. So it's just one particular kind of methodology. Also, um, uh, he doesn't mention it here, but you know, just opening your eyes using a visual world to um, and focusing on the, the uh, Buddha image or some something in front, uh, a simple me- uh, object in front of you, just using your, your vision as a way of, um, say, focusing the attention and getting a perspective rather than getting swept up in the mental creations. So there's many and various different kinds of um, ways one can use if the if the mind is extremely distracted. But um, this is just one particular uh, method that uh, he's describing here. Any questions, thoughts, clarifications? Okay. The practice tends to go like this. So it may take many sittings and a lot of effort before you become proficient. Once you are, the mind will let go of the external world and remain undisturbed. External phenomena will be unable to penetrate inside and disturb the mind. When they cannot penetrate, you'll see the mind. 
You'll see the mind as one object of awareness, the breath as another, and mental objects as yet another. They will all be present within the field of awareness, centered at the tip of your nose, where mindfulness is set up on the inhalations and exhalations. Then you continue to practice at your ease. As the mind becomes calm, the breath, which was originally coarse, correspondingly becomes lighter, more refined. The body feels lighter and the mind becomes progressively lighter and unburdened, letting go of external phenomena. From this point onward, your awareness will be turned away from the, the world outside and directed inward to focus on the mind. Once the mind has become concentrated, maintain awareness at that point where it is focused. You'll see the breath clearly as it enters and leaves. Mindfulness will be sharp, and awareness of mental objects and mental activity will be clearer. At that point, you'll see the characteristics of sila, samadhi and wisdom and the way they merge together. Once this unification of the path factors occurs, your mind will be free from all, forts, all forms of turbulence. It will become one-pointed, and this is samadhi. When you focus attention in just one place, in this case the breath, you gain clarity and awareness because of the uninterrupted presence of mindfulness. As you continue to see the breath clearly, mindfulness will become stronger and the mind becomes more sensitive in many different ways. You'll see the mind one-pointed in the center of the breath. The external world gradually disappears from your awareness and the mind will no longer perform any work on the outside. It's as if you've come inside your own house. All your sense faculties have come together to form one unit. You're at your ease and the mind is free from all external objects. Awareness remains with the breath and over time it'll penetrate deeper and deeper inside, becoming more and more refined. Ultimately, awareness of the breath becomes so refined that the sensation of it seems to disappear. You could say either that awareness of the sensation of the breath has disappeared or that the breath itself has disappeared. In other words, awareness of the breath becomes so subtle that it's difficult to define it. Really, there is still breath, but it's become so refined that it seems to have disappeared. Why? Because the mind is at its most refined, with a special kind of knowing present. All that remains is the knowing, even though the breath seems to have vanished. Take this very knowing as the meditation object and sustain that. So this is talking about the, and he's kind of going through a, uh, that sense of, of development or progress in a very short span of time, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but describing how that quality of uh, as concentration strengthens and deepens, then for most people there's a, a, a natural, um, say, uh, lightening of the the breath. It becomes uh, slower or shallower. There's more. The pauses between the in-breath and the out-breath and it naturally varies from person to person but that's a very common experience and and um, that uh, as he says the breath can as the mind gets more and more one-pointed and more focused and the breath can become you know extremely subtle so that it seems to you know the body seems to stop breathing or the breath seems to have, have, have uh, disappeared altogether you know, other talks um I'm not sure if it's later in this one, but other talks he says, you know, actually you are still breathing, but you're breathing through your skin rather than just through your through your lungs. That so the the need of the body for for oxygen uh, is very much diminished because the mind is so calm, so focused, um, and so that uh, it's a, a natural artifact, and so it can be a cause of uh, alarm, like eek, you know, I've stopped breathing, and then. <laughs> 
So sometimes a, a person can have that that uh, that recognition, like, my goodness, when did I last have a, an in breath? Like it stopped altogether. Ah, I'm about to I'm about to die, and then you kind of uh, break the the concentration. But uh, many times he says, you know, if the if the breath does seem to stop or, or get so slow or so quiet, it's it seems to be uh, unnoticeable. You know, don't panic, don't don't worry. You're you're, you're not going to die. You're, you're still you're still alive, and things won't. Um, uh, you know, you won't kind of just sort of keel over and 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 pass out. Is it? You know, the body's got its own natural uh, system, and that uh, it can be the breath can get very very quiet, very very subtle. Uh, speaking of IMS, I remember I was there. Um, I haven't been there for a long time, um, but uh, at the uh, after one ten day retreat that I led there, one of the the staff members, um, I think his name was George, was one of the uh, the maintenance people. But he was a concert pianist. At, uh, uh, so prior to being a maintenance guy at IMS, <laughs> he was a concert pianist, and. Uh, and he did a, a little um, kind of demonstration or a workshop in the town of Barry, the small town of Barry, Massachusetts, in the little town hall. And so we, were, and myself and the other sangha members, saying Ajahn Punadamo and Gloria Taraniya, went along. And um, and he was talking about meditation and music and uh, and how these things um, worked together. Because he sort of put aside his life as a concert pianist and was. Uh, focusing more on, on dhamma and uh, meditation practice, and then uh, I hadn't been around any kind of uh, music—not mu- um, musicians very much, or little and classical musicians. And it was fascinating hearing him talk about the um, the kind of training that he had done as a musician and the sort of exercises. And he talked about these uh, Chopin etudes. That uh, Chopin was a Polish um, composer and a musician. Uh, and that uh, he deliberately wrote these extremely complicated pieces to sort of to develop his skills, and so that you have the sort of the left hand playing a seven eight rhythm, and the the right hand playing a you know a, a, a five four rhythm, and then they change over uh, in the middle of, and without breaking a tune, and then just to sort of make things difficult for himself. So he wrote these very complicated pieces just to you know, develop his own strengths. And so this fellow was explaining these these different exercises and then demonstrating them. And he, my goodness, <laughs> how's he doing that? And then he said, one of, one of the effects of of training yourself for years and years in that kind of discipline is that your concentration gets extremely good uh, because you you have to be absolutely focused on what you're doing. You can't have any. There can't be a single stray thought because it's these kind and these exercises are, are designed. To help support that kind of concentration, and so then uh, uh, someone was asking him. So, well, and it was like a little so sort of interactive workshop. And so, so how does that uh, sort of support or benefit your meditation? He said, "Well, the result is that uh, I found that it's uh, that samadhi is, comes very easily to me because I spent so many years, <laughs> and that rather than focusing on the music, you know, focusing on the breath." And then also he talked about this way that the the breath would really slow down, and then he he said uh, I had I'd noticed that the the breath was extremely quiet, and uh, so he said so I, as a test I thought okay I'll I'll set the clock, and uh, I let my mind get get really concentrated, and then I'll track 
how many breaths happen in an hour. And do you know how many there was in one hour? Get, have, a, have a guess. Ten. Any guesses? Ten. <laughs> Half of one in-breath in an hour. So he th so he said you know the the, the you know the, the the time went off and he thought that was interesting he, he literally hadn't finished hadn't finished an in breath and the time he kind of registered his his mind being really focused so, okay so an in breath was begun and, and then an hour went by so I'm still I'm still in my in breath and he, there's no reason why he would be lying or, or dissembling you know, it's like he was just saying. So that was interesting. You know, he was kind of interested to see for himself. He was curious, and that uh, oh, okay, it's, it's, it really does slow right down. <laughs> so you know, physiologically, you'd say that I can't be right, but that was his experience, and, and that um, uh, and that the uh, when the mind is is deeply absorbed, and uh, the 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 need for ordinary kind of human activities uh, does it, it changes. So that people who have developed very profound states of, of absorption can sit for days, literally, you know, without any state of, of concentration for for um, for days and days without moving. There was uh, another um, one of the people. She's passed away now, but uh, Deepama, who's an Indian um, lay woman, who's a has a, a book of her teachings called Knee Deep in Grace, and. Um, so she had extraordinary uh, abilities with concentration, uh, and uh, she uh, she's a very good example of someone not dis not letting the living circumstances uh, to get in the way. She um, she lived in a, a small flat with her daughter in Calcutta, I think, in a kind of noisy area of, of Calcutta. Uh, but she had extraordinary powers of concentration, and rather like George, she thought, um, well, they say in the suttas how you could. Go into absorption and just sort of set the time how long you wanted to be absorbed. And she said, "Okay, I'll do an experiment." And so she just decided because she knew she could concentrate her mind very profoundly. And I think she, she, uh, as I recall, it was something like, "Let's say she kind of sat down with a clock and said, okay, let's say fifty-two and a half hours.' Okay, so that'll be Wednesday at." 2.30 in the afternoon okay and so she went into meditation and then uh, and then she uh, sort of went into this absorption and when she came out with the absorption you know looked at the clock and thought, okay Wednesday at half past two it worked <laughs> and again there's no reason why she would be uh, you know, making any kind of false claim but uh, she said oh it, yes you can you can set a, an intention set a time and then the mind somehow is keeping keeping track of things, and she's sat in a, a rupa jhana, a formless state of absorption for over two days. It's a very nice little book, her knee deep in grace. I'm sure we've got copies in the library of her. Very very humble person. She was uh, so they, she was invited to teach in the West a few times, but uh, I think most of the time she was. Living in India. So, any questions, thoughts? You have any classical musicians here? 
I think it's also the the effect of it being a physical discipline. It's like a non-conceptual kind of concentration. So that uh, because you, you, the, we, as human beings, we need concentration for other kinds of work and activities. But because it's not involving words or numbers, and it's a very physical, um, physically based concentration, then that has that particular kind of uh, relate, relatedness to to meditation. So it's just before seven, so maybe just uh, leave it there for uh, for today. Well, also maybe the last thing that was there in that um, that Lumpur's comments here. All that remains is the knowing, even though the breath seems to have vanished. Take this very knowing as a meditation object and sustain that. So this is the, very much the um, the focus of Lumpur Sumato's teaching uh, in the, in. Uh, particularly in recent uh, recent years, that um, embodying that quality of, of awareness, awakened awareness, so that uh, almost all of his Dhamma talks these days focus a lot upon that, and um, so that uh, element of of knowing. Sometimes in, in the Thai language they use the word puru, meaning the the one who knows, or the tat rule, the the element of uh, of awareness. Or the Pali would be vicha datu, the the element of of uh, awareness or awakeness, so that uh, when the, the mind is, I would say, is very concentrated and focused, whether it's you know, uh, absorbed in an object or is just you know, let go of all the objects, then uh, embodying that quality uh, of knowing, then that um, that's also, I would say, a, a way of fulfilling the capacity for for mindfulness and uh, and say f- uh, that sense of full attention to the present reality. So I'll leave it there for today.